The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Ape Not Kill Ape edition. It's Wednesday, July 23rd, 2014. On today's show, The Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is the second installment in a franchise reboot, normally an exercise in dreariness, but critics seem to like it. He has been making parody songs and videos for almost four decades. We talked to Slate's own Carl Wilson about the eccentric fact of Weird Al Yankovic. And finally, Kickstarter mints a potato salad entrepreneur. Joining me today is Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. You made that sound like mint potato salad, which actually could be good. Fresh mint leaves? I, I I'd contribute to that Kickstarter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right. Well, we'll we'll tuck in with you in one second about Planet of the Apes, but let me set it up. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is the sequel to The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This makes it the sophomore effort in a franchise reboot. Never words one wants to hear as a reviewer, and yet reviewers appear to really like the film. In the new movie, a flu pandemic courtesy of some combination of primate disease and big pharma malfeasance has wiped out all but the genetically immune core of the human population, which for the purposes of this film huddles together in San Francisco's South of Market. The n- new movie stars Jason Clark, uh, he of Zero Dark Thirty, and Carrie Russell and Gary Oldman. And returning as Caesar, the wise ape, is Andy Serkis. Why don't we listen to, before we start talking, why don't we listen to a clip? And let me set it up for, for a little bit here, because this is a movie that features primarily and and notably for the first, I don't know, 20-odd minutes, I think, just various kinds of apes talking to each other, mostly in subtitled ape sign language and occasionally speaking English. And here, the scene we're about to listen to a clip from, so it's a little bit difficult to clip. It's almost like a foreign film with ape language instead of French. But here, we're going to listen to a clip from a scene where the ape community of the Muir Woods is, has descended upon the human community in San Francisco. On and, horseback. On horseback, yes. Uh, the cavalry, the ape cavalry, and uh, addresses the leader of the human group with a directive. Apes! Do not want war! Don't come back. So anyway, not not a lot of dialogue there, but enough ape-speaking English to blow the minds of the gathered, huddled masses of, of the remaining human populace. That at least gives you a sense of Caesar's voice, which is a big part of this movie, and of Michael Giacchino's score, which I thought was also really sort of spooky and fun. All right. Well, Dana, uh, you quite like this movie. Yeah. I mean, overall, I would actually say I was slightly disappointed by Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but only because I had very high expectations based on the first movie, the 2011 Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which we talked about here, and I think which we all agreed was not only tons of summer fun and kind of a, a, a well-constructed thriller, but that it really created a great character in this ape philosopher king sort of Hamlet-like figure that Caesar was in the first movie. Now here in the second movie, he has actually become a warrior king. So he's more of a sort of Greek tragic or Shakespearean figure. But I really appreciate 
appreciate that this franchise, and it's really Andy Serkis, I think, largely as the CGI motion-captured ape Caesar who does it, but th- this franchise really kind of takes on some big questions. Here it's taking on questions about warfare and state formation and, you know, kinship and group bonds and what's human and what's animal. It doesn't always necessarily answer them in the smartest way, but and it does, I think, to some extent, just devolve into a standard blockbuster in the last 20 or 30 minutes, but I really like the ambition of this, this whole franchise. Mm. Julia, which do you think it's more dangerous to give a quotient of intelligence to our ape ancestors or summer blockbuster franchises? <laughs> I think are we seeing? You're saying we're seeing the glimmers of evolution in summer blockbusters. Uh, they're, they're... We are starting to see <laughs> in their gestures and grunts. There's the beginning of grammatical sense. No, I think it's like the dinosaurs. The higher... Gigantism will kill them in the end. They're evolving only in size. <gasps> Wait, I thought it was a well. Meteor. Anyway, is it a case of <laughs> yes? Is it a case of be careful what you get, wish for? Get away from me with your science, scenes. Turner. <laughs> Uh, is Allegory the New Black when it comes to these huge, uh, huge franchise summer movies? Uh, I don't think that two in the same franchise begets a trend here, Steve, but I am with Dana in thinking. Hey, that- we just did Snowpiercer, which was the most doom-laden, you know, uh, meaning-laden uh, allegory I've uh, experienced since I read Bunyan in sixth grade. <laughs> oh. I don't know that it's quite fair to compare Snowpiercer to your average Hollywood block- blockbuster, given its international Korean gene- genealogy, but all right, moving on. <laughs> I miss the Snowpiercer week, but I think this particular product of Hollywood, I'm with Dana. I think these are great movies, and they manage to have a lot more fun you know, romping around and swinging through the trees of the history of ideas as they blow up various buildings and cities and put various women and children in peril. And it shows that you can have as much of a fun summer romp on that bit of architecture as you can on just like, you know, taking a toy franchise and and mega-sizing it. And I thought this movie, in part because of the really great eight performances I guess I'm going to call them <laughs> human motion capture <laughs> slash CGI beginning eight performances was powerful and, you know, raised real questions about leadership and war and conflict and trust. And, you know, then kind of just ended up in a gigantic ball of exploding and fighting and, you know, noble speeches and glowering ape eyes. But I enjoyed the ride. And well, we should mention that besides circus, mm. there's some other it's sort of the first time that people have talked about other mocap performances besides Andy Serkis's as possible candidates for awards nominations and so forth. And one of those is the villain, the ape villain, who's this bonobo named Koba, played by Toby Kebbell. And I agree with Julia that at the end, Koba does devolve into something of a standard villain. There's even one of those classic moments where he's being, you know, held by his wrist to keep from falling to his death into an abyss. And there's the question of whether the villain will be allowed to fall or not. I mean, it's something that's happened in at least every action movie for the last, what, 35 summers. Uh, But Toby Kebbell himself really took that character, I thought, to the next level and made him, even when he becomes this awful sort of tin pot dictator of this rebel group of of apes that splits off from from Caesar's main group, he's he's sort of a, a, a sympathetic tin pot dictator ape. Also because he's right. I mean, this is sort of the tragic thing about Caesar, right? So as a leader, he's built this peaceable community uh, in, in the Redwood Forest north of San Francisco. He's convinced all of the various types of apes that they should get along and have a school and build a beautiful timber structure and go hunting together, collaborating with spears on their horseback. And Like, like, like basically every middle-aged man who moves to Marin. <laughs> 
Yeah, essentially, right? They're building a hot tub out back. And the human, you know, they, they don't even know if any humans have survived the simian plague. They, they think probably not because they haven't encountered any for 10 years. And then, lo, they come upon some humans in the woods. And one of the humans shoots one of the a young ape from the community and they have a big conflict and that's when they ride upon the city and say, you stay on your side of the bridge, we'll stay on our side of the bridge and never the twain shall meet again. But the problem is the human community is running low in electricity and they want to get back up north of the bridge to light up San Francisco through some mechanics not ever fully explained, perhaps mercifully. And, you know, we then have a diplomatic mission from Jason Clark, the kind of lead human in the movie who has a very nice Hestonian face. He looks like Charlton Heston, which they emphasize in a few shots, which I really like. But anyway, he's basically bargaining with Caesar and saying, look, just let us have power. Let us have electricity back. And then we can continue leaving each other alone. And Caesar's like, okay, that that sounds nice. You guys seem desperate. Uh, If we don't let you have it, you'll probably attack us. So let's try this. And Koba is like, don't give the humans power. We saw what happened the last time the humans had power. They destroyed us all and put us in cages and used us for their experiments. And he's right. I mean, you know, like, I'm not sure that the the beautiful, peaceable mission between Caesar and, and Jason Clark, which the movie seems to want us to root for in the, in the logic of this movie, their dreams seem sort of futile and naive. I guess mm. an interesting interpretation. I had sort of thought that the movie sp- split the difference on which of the two ape governing practices was right and that it was sort of a Malcolm versus Martin kind of question. You know, are you going to go the way of peace or are you going to go the way of rebellion? Oh, my Lord. Can I admit that I can't connect with this ape reboot at all? But you liked um, the first one, right, Steve? Well, rereading reviews of the first one, I entirely forgot I ever saw that movie. Uh, I, 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 I was John Lithgow was in it. I was like, what? I have no memory of this whatsoever, of John Lithgow, of this kind of Alzheimer's daughter person. John Lithgow who, was great in it. I trust that he was. All the reviews said so. I'm just telling you that this has, you know... I think uh, you said so. We can probably get the audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Attack ads. I love it. <laughs> um, anyhow, I, it seems to me, to the extent that, I mean, the part of the problem is I think the human stories have been way less interesting than the and- Andy Circus, you know, a performance as this lead ape, which I, I just have trouble with. I wish that there were something I could connect to in, uh, you know, something hairless, relatively hairless I could connect to in these movies. And and there isn't yet. I mean, I do think what's interesting about them is that as with the original iteration from the 60s, you know, these series are a mirror to anxieties of the moment dressed up as end times prophecies. They tend to, you know, the real dress up act is kind of taking a set of very public and very present and somewhat topical, if slightly below the surface, fears and, and wishes, uh, repressed wishes, and bringing this, it to them to the surface in this kind of absurd scenario of, of, t- of talking apes. And I was trying to figure out what this one was about. I mean, the other one was clearly about nuclear war and uh, you know, technology having gotten way ahead of our capacity to uh, control it. Uh, but what's this one about? I don't know. We're sort of suffering from a species self-hatred. I mean, and that leads to a second irony, which is to get a performance in which someone expresses this degree of vulnerability, tragic tenderness, whatever, humanity. You have to put them first in an ape suit and swathe them in CGI. I can't find a way into this. Tell me, tell me where, what I'm missing. Steve, you're such a chauvinist. You can't, you can't identify with the subaltern in this movie. I, I, <laughs> I guess the idea to me, Steve, I completely disagree that, that 
what is happening when Andy Serkis and these other performers perform as apes and, and manage to give these incredibly tender and, as you say, sort of tragic performances, that it's just slapping a guy in an ape suit and that it would be somehow more authentic if it was closer to the skin of Andy Serkis. I mean, I think what excited me so much about the first movie and maybe disappointed me slightly about this one just because it's no longer as new, but it was the possibility that motion capture could open up new imaginary worlds and not feel like a, a latex mask slapped on top of a human face, but feel like we're seeing the thoughts of an animal, which I think happens in this movie. But the language that you just used to describe the ape pseudo ape performance is language that we should be using for an actor portraying a human being. And we rarely use, right? It's like a person showing you a person, right? An, an actor using their art to show you another imaginative reality is opening up another world, whether or not they're swathed in special effects or makeup. Are you saying there aren't there aren't movies with moving human performances as humans in them? I, no, there are. The, clearly, there are, and we talk about them on a you know every other week basis. But I, I, it's odd to me how, how inhuman the performances in this specific franchise are. I don't know. To I these think, performances. I think that's sort of a strategic choice on the part of the filmmakers. I'm going to give them credit on that front. I mean, I. And and I also think you're kind of setting up a weird binary, which is the fact that we can do really cool things with CGI and motion capture and make interesting performances like this is not elbowing other interesting performances out of the world. You know, I think Gary Oldman is kind of classically Gary Oldman-ish in a, you know, not very well written role in this film. But he's, you know, he's he's giving us some of that Oldman mojo. I think Jason Clark and Carrie Russell and, and uh, the kid who plays Jason Clark's son are sort of, you know, empty human nothing burgers, but they're supposed to be. The whole point of this franchise is to make us look upon the human world from an outside view and and be skeptical of it. And in terms of how this movie relates to the politics of the day, I mean, I feel like it's an allegory about the um, completely stultified, intractable American political system. It's like this fantasy of leadership. We can't get anything done if only we had a leader as noble and wise and pure of heart and thoughtful as Caesar who could actually accomplish something in the world and didn't continually get stuck in the mire of our political system. You know, it's it's like a leadership fantasy. Anyway, Steve, I'm not making by any means a claim for this as a you know, great masterpiece and the finest artwork of the year. I'm just more surprised that as the goofy blockbuster it is, that I agree has completely forgettable human characters, that it does manage to open up so many interesting and beautiful moments with the ape characters. I mean, the sign language alone, we haven't really gotten into it, but the gestural language that the apes develop to communicate as they're still sort of starting to adopt human language, is just really beautiful to see. It's kind of, I wish there had a little bit been some more ape ethnography in there, but that was the stuff that turned me on. Mm. Well, maybe in the third one. Okay, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It's the sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. It's in theaters now. Tell us what you thought of it. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. What do we think the next one's going to be called? Mid-morning of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> exactly. Brunch of the Planet of the Apes. Eleven Zs of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? That's right, Steve. Our sponsor this week is Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of digital spoken audio information on the web. They offer more than 150,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for our listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. You can choose your free book from their vast library, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. 
And for the past few months, we've been putting together something we're calling the Culture Gab Fest Bucket List. This is our list of books that you simply must have read to be a wise and cultured person in the world, uh, or for Steve to uh, take you seriously at a cocktail party. So, Dana, what is our addition to the list this week? Well, we thought we would add something to the bucket list related to our Rise of the Planet of the Apes topic and what we were just talking about with the ape ethnography and, you know, studying the cultures of of other species. And to that end, I am going to recommend The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin, which is his account, his very diaristic account of his five-year journey around the world on on an HMS ship called the Beagle. And uh, this is something, a book that's very dear to my heart because I believe it was the year between seventh and eighth grade or eighth and ninth grade. I had a summer program. I did a sort of summer program where you could take a college class. And there were all these great, uh, great ones offered. And the one that I took, for some reason, I ended up reading The Voyage of the Beagle and doing a big report on it. So my sort of first exposure to science writing and travel writing and Charles Darwin and, you know, all kinds of crazy um, Galapagos species was through The Voyage of the Beagle. And as it happens, uh, this book, which is way more fun to read than you could imagine, the, the 20-year-old or however old he was, the mid-20s Charles Darwin was just a wonderful, lyrical, witty, observant writer, um, is read by, of all people, Richard Dawkins, who is, of course, one of the inheritors of... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, Darwin's Darwin's mantle, mantle. yeah, Yeah. Uh, and who is apparently quite a good reader. There's many different readings, abridged and unabridged, of Voyage of the Beagle on Audible, but Dawkins is the top rated at four and a half out of five stars. So if you're looking for something to listen to on Audible, Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin, read by Richard Dawkins. That sounds like a great addition to the bucket list. And I have not read it yet, I'm I'm ashamed to say. So I'll I'll have to move it to the top of my roster. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give Audible a try today and please use our URL so they know you're a Culture Gabfest listener. It's audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. To browse the crowdfunding website Kickstarter is to die and go to vaporware heaven. Everything from ocean-drifting city-state paradise freed from the surly bonds of government intrusion to smartphones that hover in the air next to you awaiting your next command can be found there. To stand out as truly absurd on Kickstarter, one needs to go for the golden double, be prohibitively expensive and preemptively stupid, i.e. defy all known laws of physics. Potato salad is neither a libertarian fantasy nor an engineering chimera. Chimera? What do we go with here? Chimera? 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 Oh, dear. We're going to need an intervention from the booth on this one. (laughs) We might. Anyway, for now, we'll say chimera, chimera. It's potato salad. It's boiled potatoes, mayonnaise, maybe a chop of red onion. It obeys the laws of conservation of energy and gravity. It conforms to everything we know about human nature. People love potato salad everywhere, and it's cheap. What is it doing on Kickstarter? Well, a kid in Columbus, Ohio named Zach Brown, his middle name he claims is actually Danger, put up a Kickstarter plea to make some potato salad. Basically, he said, I'm just making potato salad. And he has raised tens of thousands of dollars. This has inspired copycats, hand-wringing, incredulity, and what passes for soul-searching, I suppose. Dana, is potato salad a referendum on modern existence, spelled with a Z, or a Dadaist satire, or is it just potato salad? (laughs) Steve, you've left me. There are only three words left in the English language to use now. (laughs) (laughs) A ladder, lamp, and hook. (laughs) (laughs) I've been reduced to a smoking nub. Thank you, Dana. 
I mean, I confess, I'm going to throw it to Julia to, to explain to us why we're talking about potato salad and what is the larger meaning. I mean, to me, this this seems like perhaps it reveals something about the way we live now that this guy managed to pull off this ridiculous stunt and earn, what is it now, $61,000 and counting in exchange for making some potato salad. I think mainly for me, it just sort of revealed some cracks in the Kickstarter universe that I hadn't known existed before. For example, the fact that you are required to spend your Kickstarter money on exactly what it's it's intended for, which makes sense. Um, people don't want to be contributing to charities that they didn't intend to contribute to. And so this guy is not allowed to do anything with his $61,000 except make that much potato salad. Is that correct, Julia? No, it's not quite correct. <laughs> um, so we're, we're coming to the Kickstarter fracas a little bit late. This was a this was a viral phenomenon that swept the internet a week or two ago, I think, uh, and begat celebration at the guy's uh, enthusiastic humor and hand-wringing at the preposterous waste of resources and a little bit of thinking about the role that Kickstarter plays in the economy and maybe in our cultural imaginations. And I think that's where there's something for us to talk about here because – I do think we're in this funny Kickstarter moment. Like we've, we've, it's a thing now. You can have a Kickstarter. You can have a Kickstarter for anything. You can have a viral Kickstarter fracas where the guy who's not actually a kid, he's like a 31 year old owner of a company, ends up. That's on, a kid. <laughs> fine. Ends up, ends up uh, on Good Morning America explaining his earnest intentions about his potato salad. And I'm just, we've never really talked about the Kickstarter thing and why Kickstarter does catch on with people and what it means to contribute to one, whether it's a joke one or a real one, uh, and and the, the sort of collective we're all venture capitalists fantasy that it engenders in all of us. But I don't know. The whole thing got me to thinking, like, do we think the Kickstarter is a force for good in the world or not? And why? I mean, this is just one angle of the many that Kickstarter is used for. But since I'm writing about entertainment, this is how I usually hear about Kickstarter as a kind of funder for artistic projects. It seems like it, it definitely something that can can do good for the world. I mean, when you hear about Zach Braff, for example, funding his last movie through Kickstarter, you might think be rolling your eyes and thinking, why does this guy who already has Hollywood connections need money essentially from his fans in order to make a movie? And maybe that is a debatable ethical relationship to have if you already do have the means in other ways to get your film made. But the fact is that many, many artistic creators don't. And so the idea that there would be some sort of collective source of funding makes complete sense. Mm. I mean, I I would be totally skeptical of it because of Zach Braff and, you know, an analogy that I come up with in my, in, in my own head, which is to this horrible thing in professional sports called personal seat licenses, where you're essentially paying for the right to participate in in, a, in you're paying for the right to participate in fandom. You're kind of paywalling fandom in some ways, um, in some contexts. But I totally see the other side of it as well. There's we once did a Slate Plus uh, segment not so long ago about a, a coffee shop in Vermont that I adore, and it's one of my favorite places in the world to be. And in back, they've built their. They're also a bakery. They've built an astonishing oven. It's like one of the most extraordinary contraptions I've ever seen. It's, I think, built out of cement. It's massive, wood-fired, and what's coming out of it is, you know, heaven, basically. And it was funded by a Kickstarter campaign. They had no way, you know, they had to, they had to source the money somehow, somewhere. That said, apart from the intrinsic value or lack of value to any specific thing on Kickstarter... Isn't there, Julia, isn't there a little part of you that feels as though that what's being satirized by this potato salad is 
a, a naive notion of the wisdom of crowds that has started to curdle just a little bit. I think that's maybe part of why people enjoyed contributing to it on a lark. Yes. I mean, I think there is the appeal of Kickstarter, right? The, the promise of Kickstarter, both for the people who post their projects there and for the people who donate, is a little bit of an outsider thrill, right? The official channels of decision-making and power and money doling out are going to have blinders on. They want to back a trusted horse. They want to give money to someone they know. They saw Zach Braff's last movie, so they don't want to finance his next one. Whatever it is, there's, they are not going to support everything in the world. And Kickstarter helps foster the notion that these official decision makers are, you know, bad or stupid or making the wrong call in, in some way or other. So if you've been rejected a lot and, and you're trying to get financing for your, you know, company that makes a new cooler. That was another project that got a ton of money last week was something called The Coolest, which is a cooler with a built-in blender that raised like $5 million or something like that for a $300 cooler on wheels. That is an excellent product name, I have to say. <laughs> it is. The, the product name is like the best thing about it, I think. You know, so if you have something like that that you want to build and you can't get funding for it, you can sort of go put it on Kickstarter and appeal to a set of people who want to think of themselves as like like-minded outsiders disrupting the official channels of, you know, decision making and product launching. And so in this world where that is something that we all value, we all like the idea of that, you know, some kind of outsider underdog upstart can can overturn everything we understand about this or that industry. Kickstarter plays to a fantasy of the moment and any joke or gimmick Kickstarter is inevitably kind of riffing on that moment. So the notion that just some guy in his house wants to try a new recipe and that that's going to really like disrupt his lunch is funny. It, you know, like it's it's a bit amusing. I'm not sure all of that was consciously built into his project, but I think we can certainly read it there. Well, his Kickstarter proposal page definitely does incorporate some elements of parody. I think the funniest thing on it was the rewards that he promised people in return for their donations. I mean, he's just sort of making fun of this Kickstarter tradition that you get rewards, right? I'm making a movie. Will you get an early copy of the DVD if you pledge to my Kickstarter? So he promises to say the name of whoever pledges while making the potato salad, <laughs> meaning that while he makes it, he now has, you know, who knows how many thousands of names to recite. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, the, that notion was sort of amusing. Um, and there is, you know, Kickstarter is apparent. They used to very narrowly approve every single project that went up on Kickstarter. And in some way, recently, they've loosened the strictures a bit. And so I think some people have suggested, oh, no, this is what happened when what happens when Kickstarter opens the gates. You get more kind of goofy things like this. I guess my I have this nagging reservation about Kickstarter, which is that I'm not sure that the fantasy that the official decision makers are always wrong is useful necessarily for lots of entrepreneurs or artists or creative people or people who want to fund them. Sometimes that is true and sometimes it's not. And it's very cool and democratic and exciting to let everybody evaluate for themselves all of these things that they might want and figure out what they might want to put their money towards. But especially with product things, like it's just very hard to tell from a Kickstarter whether the person who came up with the coolest and has a blender in the top of it, you know, is that really going to be a good product? Do I know that that guy has like the right R&D team and can source the right parts from the right factories? And at some point in the middle of that Kickstarter, as it was racking up funds, he added additional colors and they all have cool names like blue curacao or whatever to go with whatever things you're going to blend in your blender. 
But it's like, okay, so did you stop in the middle of the Kickstarter and figure out the price point for the various paints you would need? Like, there's just technical parts of the notion of product design via Kickstarter that seem perplexing to me and make me not totally trust uh, the folks who are putting projects out there who haven't don't necessarily have a proven ability to bring something to market. Yeah, I, I did, Julia. You have you have articulated what I was trying to get at beautifully. I totally agree with it. And also, you know, as a friend of mine said to me recently, we're living in a capital abundant, ideas scarce world, which is a complete inversion, by the way, of the world that produced, say, Microsoft and Apple. You know, Steve Jobs was living in a, a, a radically capital-scarce world in the 1970s, but that really wasn't what was primarily on his and Steve Wozniak's mind when they invented, you know, uh, effectively made the personal computer a, a mass consumer possibility. The idea that you need massive amounts of high-velocity money moving constantly around the system and funneled only by this kind of headless creature called the market in order to produce things that will revolutionize the way we live uh, or think is to me is really absurd. So so my sense is that people are really participating in a fantasy about Kickstarter more than they are funding a specific idea. And that's what this potato salad satire brought home. I mean, at the very least, I have utter confidence that this guy can probably make potato salad. I mean, given that you could just put potatoes, cold cooked potatoes and olive oil and a little vinegar in a bowl and call it potato salad. Then. OK, well, there's but there's an elephant in the room and I want to go around the room and settle this once and for all. Uh, hard boiled egg, yes or no, in your potato salad. Dana Stevens, go. Uh, no. Oh, my God. Hell Jesus. no. That's egg salad. I, What's wrong I with you, I, man? I thought I knew you people. I'm only I pledging guess. for this guy if he's doing a German potato salad. If there's any mayo in there, I'm withdrawing my funds. Hold, you're spoiling my endorsement. Holy God, you're vinaigrette. So you're not only no egg in the potato salad, you're like vinaigrette, kind of fiend herb sprinkled over it. Just German you're- style, old school, next to a sausage and a stein of beer. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, anyway, wrapping up, tell us what you thought about Kickstarter. I'm sure there are going to be some um, uh, raving libertarian madmen out there who uh, dispute my characterization of it. Come to our show page and um, tell us all about it. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash culturefest. Julia, before we go any further, we have some business to attend to. What do you got? I just want to remind our listeners about Slate Plus, which is Slate's great membership program. If you sign up, it's 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. And if you sign up for an annual subscription, you get a sweet Jonathan Adler-designed exclusive Slate mug. They're just going out to uh, customers this week. I've seen some cool photos on social media of them. So if you want to up your mug game... You should sign up for Slate Plus. It offers all kinds of perks to Slate readers and listeners, including uh, unpaginated articles on the site and ad-free versions of the podcast and bonus segments thereof. And our bonus segment this week will be responding to a great question from a listener who notes that as uh, professional culturati, we have to use words like chimera, 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 uh, all the time, <laughs> and thus must uh, pronounce them with gusto and hopefully accuracy. And false confidence. And false confidence, and uh, wants to know about that and our pronunciation bugaboos. Um, also, we've got uh, official word from our brand new intern, Josephine Livingstone, who promises uh, that this is not the British pronunciation. Josephine, how do we pronounce chimera? Chimera. Okay, official. It's official from the new intern, Chimera. We'll pronounce that and multiple other things on the Slate Plus segment that follows the show. But Julia, isn't it culturati? <laughs> we, we can debate that too. All right, to sign up, it's uh, slate.com slash culture plus.
All right. Well, moving on. Mandatory Fun is Weird Al Yankovic's 14th studio album. One would be tempted to ask how he has lasted this long, but there has been an internet and there's been a golden age of comedy. He predates The Simpsons, Larry Sanders, The Onion, Family Guide, not to mention YouTube. And yet with roach-like persistence, he's still going and thriving. As I said, that's his 14th studio album, in addition to which he's having a moment right now. He's released eight videos in eight days. He's getting an enormous amount of press. Here to talk us through how and why Weird Al has lasted so long and is having this current moment is Slate's music critic, Carl Wilson. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. All right, Carl, before we uh, tuck in here and uh, talk Weird Al, why don't you pick one of the uh, eight uh, new songs and we'll take a listen. Well, absolutely. My favorite of the new uh, eight songs is the first one that he released, um, which is Tacky, his take on Pharrell's Happy. It might be crazy wearing stripes of pride. Yeah, this was the first one that made a really big splash, I think, of this recent set that he released. And it's been very fun somehow because of the improbability of it, I think, to see Weird Al have a like modern internet moment. But Carl, I'm curious why that one was your favorite. Um, well, I think it does something that Weird Al, to me, doesn't often enough do, in that there's something about the choice of parody material that is more suited to the song because you know happy is about a state of mind and and it's kind of brilliant to go what other states of mind have two syllables and sound like that and tacky is great because it it gives him this chance to kind of riff off on all kinds of modern garishness from you know the clothing that he's wearing in the video and the, the clothing that he mentions in the song all the way out to sort of technological mores and manners where it's about people Instagramming their meals and live-tweeting funerals and this kind of, you know, unusually timely for him, kind of 2014 forms of tackiness, along with never letting you forget the favor that he did for you. I think it's also worth mentioning, we can't see it here on a podcast, but the, the, the video for Tacky is great in the way it rips off Farrell's happy video with, you know, the different dancers replacing one another. He gets a lot of great celebrity cameos for the dances. Jack Black is particularly hilarious in his little dancing sequence. But the way that he sort of took took the, uh, the format of the happy people replacing one another and turned into tacky people shoving each other off screen so they could take center stage was pretty funny. I also loved your observation in your piece that having a song where you sing entirely about how freaking happy you are is in itself a little bit tacky and so there's, yeah. <laughs> there's a slight pointedness to this one I did enjoy this one although I think my favorite of the recent one is the spoof of Lord's Royals um, yeah here here I totally agree. where which is more dada and goofy and timeless and if anybody remembers that song in 20 years they will also get the timeless jokes in this parody let's just listen to a quick clip of that I never seem to finish all my food I always get a doggy bag from the waiter So I just keep what's still unshoed And I take it home, save it for later But then I deal with fungal, rot, bacterial formation 
Hydration, microbes, <laughs> enzymes, mold and oxidation. I don't care. I've got a secret trick up my sleeve. I never bother with baggies, glass jars, Tupperware containers, plastic, cling wrap, really a no-brainer. I just like to keep all my flavors sealed in tight with aluminum foil. You're so right, Carl, that it's scansion that makes it all work. It's like jamming a syllable into every little crack and crevice. It's so funny. I mean, yeah, it's incredible. Like, one of my favorite things in that, in that one is, is the way that he uses the same little bridge that Lord uses to build into royals to say, with aluminum. <laughs> it's just sort of this, this little, little step staircase that he climbs up to say foil and gives foil this improbable grandeur. Yeah. yeah, I also love how in the video he uses his hair to great effect because his long, wavy hair is actually more Lord-esque than you might expect. <laughs> There's a bit more of an aesthetic uh, resonance there. The other one that went viral, which I didn't like as much, was sort of a grammar scold version of Blurred Lines called Word Crimes, which the video was slightly, was more animated and thus less animated. I thought it was like little exclamation points and question marks hopping around and scolding you for spelling it's wrong, which, you know, I'm all for using words correctly, but I also feel like the grammar scold moment in culture has passed and we're all descriptivists now and, and Weird Al is not a descriptiveness and there's something kind of proudly nerdy and uh, linguistically prideful about his reappropriations of pop songs, and I think that's also part of what gives him their appeal, is that it's sort of like a nerd's reclamation of a nerdy pop culture, uh, and and that is, is part of what makes him great. Okay, now here's the deal. I'll try to educate you. Gonna familiarize you with the nomenclature. You learn the definitions of nouns and prepositions. I feel like you hear in that song some of the slightly more unsavory sides of the nerd, right? Like the, the self-righteousness of the nerd there. Yeah, exactly. The only sort of redeeming factor about it is you can kind of imagine that perhaps he's trying to be as obnoxious as Robin Thicke himself. <laughs> um, but, I, I, but I suspect that that's not what's actually going on. It's actually we're now showing off a slightly less attractive, luxury, schoolmarmy side. It's one of the moments where his adulthood and his generation are, are more visible, whereas, for example, when he's taking off Royals or, or Farrell, he, he does seem to be, you know, surprisingly of, of the moment and able to play with language in a way that incorporates new terms and new memes. I mean, I think the other thing that's contributed to the Weird Al moment on the Internet is that the Internet is a gigantic nostalgia machine right now, right? The, you know, there's 25... BuzzFeed lists every day of like how you know you were born in 1982 and then they show you like pictures of the flower making basket or whatever the hell from your childhood and Weird Al is simultaneously of all of our childhoods and yet back in a non-doddering way to bring the like goofy lighthearted mockery that he brought to our childhoods to our musical present and like who can do anything but applaud that like it's just fun i you know sure there's sharper more interesting more specific more time sensitive more wondrous musical parodies on the internet you mentioned in your piece 
Carl Flight of the Concords, which is a great show, the Lonely Island songs, um, often featured on Saturday Night Live and findable elsewhere. That it's true that he spawned a thousand imitators and that some of them are arguably better than him, but there's just a mix of quality and nostalgia that will keep the Weird Al love fest rolling, I think. I agree. I think Carl, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what's really unique about him is that he appeals to the sweet middle schooler in all of us and not the mean or the snotty middle schooler. And for whatever else is true about the kind of comedy renaissance that we're living through, it's been hysterically funny and apt, but it's not quite, it's not, I wouldn't call it sweet or nerdy. I'd call it the opposite of those things. Comedy has been cool. And I think Weird Al has the courage of being kind of uncool. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which there will always be an audience for Weird Al because there's always going to be more 13-year-olds, right? (laughs) It's not exactly an adult satire. It's something much more universal and kind of right at the tip of the funny bone rather than deep down. Yeah, I love that notion, Steve. You're right that now that comedy has become the cool kids, it sort of leaves out some of the classic constituents of comedy, right, which is the the uncool. And I like that Weird Al is reclaiming the internet and the song parody for, for them and for that person inside all of us. And also just the idea that maybe middle school humor is eternal, right? Maybe 13-year-olds at the back of the class making up other lyrics for popular songs are giggling at the same stupid rhymes that they did 30 years ago. And there's something great about that. All right. Well, Carl Wilson's piece on Slate is called His Baloney. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show. As always, a total pleasure. Well, thanks so much. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, since we just got done talking about Weird Al and song parodies and novelty song in general, I thought that I would endorse a great novelty singer that I feel like enough people don't know. I hope you guys know him. Tom Lehrer. Are you familiar with the Mm, musical stylings? Steve, you know him, right? So Tom Lehrer is more of our parents' generation. I guess he's probably in his... 80s now. He is still alive. And uh, he is just a great song parodist who worked in the 50s and 60s and wrote just some of the funniest song parodies of all time. Not Actually, parody is not quite the word. They're, they're novelty songs. They're not Weird Al-style adaptations of a previously existing song with new funny lyrics. That was more the domain in, in that generation of Alan Sherman, who created that Hello Mudda, Hello Fada summer camp song, and was very much the Weird Al of his time. When you And I sort of think about the popul- populist embrace of him. But Tom Lehrer was more of like the Brainiacs novelty songwriter. He was a mathematician. He taught at Harvard and Santa Cruz and other places and just had an incredible brain for both numbers and words and created these very clever and often quite dark and bitter novelty songs, um, one of which that I remember well, and I remember performing it for a, uh, an induction into my high school drama club, is Be Prepared, which was a parody of the, the Boy Scout motto and where the Boy Scout keeps sort of going down more and more uh, scary roads to vice. And you can find lots of Tom Lehrer clips on, on YouTube and here and there, but I was going to recommend a double album called The Best and Worst of Tom Lehrer that includes not only the Boy Scout song Be Prepared, but such classics as The Old Dope Peddler, The Masochism Tango, and Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. <laughs> That's enticing. Those are enticing titles. Uh, excellent. Um, Julia, what do you have? I've been thinking a lot for some reason about potato salad lately, so I wanted to endorse my favorite potato salad. This uh, is found in the wonderful cookbook of Marcella Hazan, the, the terrific Italian chef. Uh, her great book, Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking. I think I've talked about this book on the podcast before. It's one of my favorites because she has a very imperious tone about the right way to do things. And in addition to containing delicious recipes, uh, it contains a lot of Italian hauteur, which often you don't associate the Italians with hauteur. It's a French word, obviously. And uh, But she is 
stringent and bracing in her application of the proper principles of Italian cooking. And her opinion of the proper way to make potato salad is to use potatoes, olive oil, red wine vinegar, and salt, and call it a day there. And if you follow her recipe, you can add some herbs to it if you like. Uh, She might look askance, but I think it's good. It's just so much better than any potato salad that has mayo or, for God's sakes, eggs anywhere near it. Uh, and and you should you should make it, and then you should rejoice. I mean, I approve of anything that includes the words Marcella Hazan in it. So I'm not going to go against you on this, Julia. But I'm just telling you that in the United States of America, in the New World, the way to make potato salad is to glop it the fuck up. Okay. Mayonnaise and boiled eggs. Do okay? we need to get this Borkful guys back in here, Steve? Are you saying you want to have another food fight? Throw it down, baby. I am so ready on this one. And the peop- this time the people are behind me. We'll see. All right. Well, here's my endorsement. I was, uh, I put, I was listening to Pandora the other day, and I had a Bill Evans uh, uh, radio station set up. You know, Bill Evans, obviously the you know, truly great jazz pianist, uh, did a lot of great work in the late 50s through the 60s through the 70s, actually, as well. Um, And a couple things came up that really interested me. One was a Russian pianist who goes by his first name, Eldar, E-L-D-A-R. It is a very mixed bag with Eldar. He is a prodigy, and like a lot of prodigies, he wants to stuff as many notes into uh, the smallest uh, uh, unit of time possible, which to me is like, you know, it's like someone showing off on a typewriter. Uh, It's not especially musical when he puts that aside he he does these really interesting voicings chord spacings and melodic and very beautiful when he lets himself do it it's a little bit in the direction of new age or easy listening so i'm going to just cut undercut my own endorsement by also saying that i want to endorse mccoy tyner who also came up in this uh, radio tyner is one of the kind of semi-lost men of jazz because he's most famous for being the pianist uh, on John Coltrane's uh, great, great records. Um, and he played beautifully on those. But of course, if you're playing behind Coltrane's, maybe arguably the greatest jazz instrumentalist of all time. I mean, he's one of them, certainly. But Tyner made a lot of solo albums that are fantastic, that are so beautiful. And the song that came up on this Pandora station was from his album Reaching Forth. And the song was called Good. The tune was called Goodbye. And it was, you know, it was just so heartbreaking and beautiful. It was such an expressive piece of playing. And it was just an example of what Tyner does when he's a leader and, and, and out front on a record. Anyway, highly recommend to check it out. And I'm very curious what the jazz bows in our audience make of Eldar, whether they think it's like more like George Winston or more like Bill Evans. Uh, so come and tell me. Is jazz bow a technical term? It is very, very technical. And there's so many different weird ways to pronounce it. <laughs> Jazzebo. <laughs> Jazzebo. All right. Well, uh, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers, and our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Spring 
is here, a suffering is here. Life is skittles and life is beer. I think the loveliest time of the year is the spring. I do, don't you? Of course you do. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide. But they still go for peanuts when coated with cyanide. The sun's shining bright, everything seems all right when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. La, 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 la.